W266DQ, Quincy. WMEX Quincy Boston, streaming at WMEXBoston.com. And on your smart speaker, just say, play WMEX. The greatest hits of all time are back. This is the all-new WMEX. WMEX Boston. They singing all night, drinking wine, spooty oldie, drinking wine. Wine, spooty oldie, drinking wine. That's right, it's time for Wine by Design with our friend Len on 1510 WMEX. Len is indeed a certified wine educator with over 30 years in the wine industry. And his show lives right here on 1510 AM and 101.1 FM in Quincy. Here's your host, Len Prasuti. Well, welcome, uh, everyone, and thank you, Ben. Really looking forward to tonight. As um, usual, we have great listener questions. I can't tell you how much I appreciate everyone asking me so many different things. It's just a ton of fun, and it it gives me ideas because there's so much we could be talking about. So just wanted to let you know a couple different ways there to ask your questions. You can either call WMEX, 781-834-9639, or perhaps the best way is to email me at lenwmex at gmail.com or l-e-n-w-m-e-x at gmail.com. Well, as I mentioned, I wanted to start off um, with a listener question, as we usually do. This one came from Dawn, who said she lives on Cape Ann. She didn't give me any more specific information than that. But her question was, what are the words V-I-E-I-L-L-E-S, next word, V-I-G-N-E-S? What does that mean on a wine label? And wow, is that a great question? And it brings us to the whole idea of how the fruits produce to make wine. What that means is vieille vigne, which is French for old vines. And it turns out that many people think, and I'm going to give you an example to the contrary in just a little, that the older vines make the very best wine. Now, just to back up a little bit, a wine, a grapevine to make wine from has typically a useful life from about the third year to its mid-20s, like 25, 26, 27. That's when they're most productive. So that's when they produce the most fruit and very good quality fruit. But when they pass that, say, 30-year mark, let's put it there, they start automatically producing less and less fruit each year. And that's just when they have this really deep root support system that samples all these different nutrients and minerals and everything like that and can throw them into fewer grapes. So if you think about it, fewer mouths to feed, the mouths are better fed. So these grapes are really spectacular in that they have tremendous depth, concentration, and flavor in them that is then transferred to the wine. Now, the big problem that you run into is when you pass that 30-year mark, Can you charge enough extra because the wine's that much better 
to make up for the loss in volume. And that really is an economic equation that all the winemakers really kind of have to go through. Um, one of the things I do want to talk just a little bit about, because it enters into this whole thing of the deep roots, which is one of the reasons Viavine means good wine in old vines. But I want to talk just a little about a bit about organic farming, why we're now placing a ton of emphasis on it and where we came from. Uh, this all started just a couple of years after the Second World War. And these chemists came up with what they thought was a great thing in terms of pesticides. They didn't realize how bad they were for people and, and the environment and everything else. But anyway, they went to the winemakers, and in some cases, the great winemakers of France, and told them, you know, you have trouble with diseases and just different great maladies that can affect the vine. We have a way to cure all that. They said, wow, okay, you got my attention here. They gave them these pesticides that were extremely harmful to the earth and to people. Some people even spraying them actually got very, very, very sick. But what happened was in the beginning for the first couple of years, the wine was great. And when they hit the third year, however, going into the fourth, all of a sudden there was, there was no growth on the vine. And they were trying to figure out what happened. What happened is that the soil itself, when it's alive and healthy, is filled with all these microorganisms that aerate the soil, keep it vibrant, and helps provide nutrition to the, to the vine and all that. But when they put on the pesticides, they killed it all. And for the first couple of years, the dying microorganisms were fertilizer, but then after the third year, they had to start putting fertilizer on all the vines. Otherwise, they couldn't, couldn't make wine. The, the vines wouldn't produce. Now, one of the reasons I'm going through that right now is something that happened when the soil was dead, for want of a better word, it compacted. And this became a huge problem, soil compaction. It became so tight that the vines could not put their roots through it. And the roots were right near the surface of the, uh, of the ground there where they were very vulnerable and exposed and uh, it, just a very dangerous situation for the vine. So that's when we've gotten into this whole organic farming movement. It's so important and just about everyone's doing it now. Everyone recognizes, hey man, we have to do this. Not only is it good for the planet, but it's good for our vines and it's good for the wines. So they're plowing up the earth, whatever they have to do, and encouraging the growth of those microorganisms again by not using anything that could harm them. Um, and the soil is coming alive. So again, these vines can place very, very deep roots. That's the important part, as I mentioned before. And they can go down, wow, um, 55, 65. I've heard of some vines going 100 feet 
below the earth and more. So they they really um, produce wine of tremendous depth and flavor and character. Now, some vines that are out there are really old. I was at Chateau de Bocastel, the, the great Chateau de uh, Pop producer, and they had a whole area where the vines in that part of the vineyard were over 120 years old. So they produced very, very little fruit. And they mixed it with the other vines that were much more vigorous to make it economically feasible. Even with them, when they were paying a lot, uh, you know, people were paying a lot for their, their wine. But right around that 35 years of age is the kind of sweet spot. And when they're putting Via Vigna or Old Vine on the label, I've never seen them do it with vines that are less than 35 years of age. It's not like codified in law or anything like that, but it's, it's just common practice. And many times those vines will be 50, 60, or 70 years old. And again, producing really, really great wine. There is a story now, haven't been there, haven't confirmed it, but there is a vine in Slovenia that's 400 years old, believe it or not, and still producing fruit. Uh, it averages about 100 pounds of grapes per year, and they're making, obviously, a very small amount of wine from that. But uh, who knows? It, it looks like the vines can live uh, just about forever there. But like everything else in wine, there seems to be people making a counter argument. Now, you can weigh everything and, and come to your own conclusions, but some people say that the best wines are made from very young vines. Now, the thing that they most often bring forth to uh, bolster that claim is something that we're going to go into in some depth. It had to do with a wine that won from California, the 1976 Judgment of Paris wine tasting. And that was considered to be the, um, the greatest wine tasting, the most consequential wine tasting in the history of the planet there. Uh, a little bit of background on it. There was a a wine person, he was an exporter and you know, considered to be an all-round wine expert, Stephen Spurrier from the United Kingdom, that lived in Paris. And he had heard from friends how great some of the California wines were. So he put together this tasting with some of the absolute top French wine experts. You know, there were educators there, there were winemakers there, chefs, Raymond Oliver. I, I have his cookbook. We use it all the time. Some of our favorite recipes are from it. Um, Vernet from the owner of Taivant, uh, sommeliers, the most influential wine writers of the time were there. So really, all French tasters, you know, all, all people that know what they're doing. At the last moment, because they're going to taste California wines against French wines. They thought, ah, we'll, we'll, we'll teach the Californians a lesson here. At the very last moment, this wasn't planned, and nobody really objected to it, because at that point, no one ever thought that California wines could even remotely compare with the uh, best of France. Stephen Sperry said, 
you know, why don't we do this as a blind tasting? And so you can imagine um, what happened was the California wine showed spectacularly well. And the wine that won that tasting was the 1973 Stag's Leap Wine Cellars SLV Cabernet Sauvignon. It beat the 1970 Mouton Rothschild first growth. And Aubryon was in that tasting. Um, just a, a lot of the very, very best wines that they had to offer. It was just Cabernet and, and Chardonnay that they did it with. But I want to tell you a little bit about the history of the Stag's Leap Wine Cellars wine there. I actually had a chance to host the, the person that founded that winery, Warren Winiarski, and had him for a dinner. And, and he told the tale. He originally was in publishing in Chicago and got bitten by the wine bug, had tasted a lot of wines throughout Europe, developed a pretty sophisticated palate but was so into it that he moved his whole family out to California. And he had an idea of the perfect wine set in his mind. He wanted it to have great fruit and um, depth and complexity, but he wanted it to have this kind of almost universal appeal that he found from the very best wines of Europe. So he went around tasting throughout all of California. Anyone that was making a wine from a specific vineyard, he tasted. And from what I understand, he tasted literally hundreds of wines. His epiphany came when he tasted the wines of um, Nathan Fay. They shared a bottle on his back porch and he said, my God, this is exactly what I'm looking for. He was so excited. The first thing he tried to do was to buy the vineyard from Nathan Fay. And he said, no, he says, this, this is my baby here. I love making wines. And you can see how great the wine is. So he did the next best thing and bought the adjacent vineyard, which happened to be for sale. So he planted grapes and did the whole thing on a shoestring. He had literally no money at all. Um, when he planted the grapes, he couldn't water them because he had no irrigation system. So talk about uh, innovation. He took this little rowboat that he had and drilled holes in the side of it that he then filled with wine corks, filled it with water, and pulled it through the vineyards leaving a, a couple of the holes open so that it would water the vines. But anyway, he did make a wine that he felt was very good. It was a 1973 Stag's Leap Wine Cellars SLV and went through California trying to sell it and no one even particularly wanted to buy it. Uh, but that was the wine that won the judgment of Paris and the reason I'm telling you this story is that wine that he made was from vines that were three years old. The very first time that you can make a viable wine from uh, new vines like that. So that's the argument on the other side. The only other thing I did want to mention is where it really kind of came home to me that old vines do mean a lot. And most of the very expensive wines out there 
have relatively old vines, usually way past 30 years of age. I did a tasting of 2003 Burgundies. Now, that was a really tough year. It was that super, super hot year. I don't know if you remember reading about it, but a lot of the grandmothers were dying throughout France. It was so hot, and there was a drought that attended it. And it was an absolute horrible vintage for wine, especially in Burgundy. Because what happens is once you get much over 100 degrees, the vine will shut down, totally kind of turns in on itself as a survival mechanism. Um, I talked to some winemakers that were making wine that year, and they said they, they took sugar levels, you know, at one point, and then again, three weeks later, when the grapes should have gotten dramatically riper, and there was no increase in sugar levels at all because the vines had shut down. So anyway, I'm uh, tasting through this uh, person's Burgundy portfolio. It's Vincent Giardin, made some really great wines, a lot of different appellations, homage, every Chambertin, and all that. So there are about 15 or so wines there, and I'm tasting, and five of the wines just stood out as spectacular when all the others were mediocre at best and barely that. So I did some research, and I found that in every single case, every one of those bottles that did show extremely well were from very old vines. So um, that's uh, the the old vine tale, uh, so to speak. Now, before we go into finishing up our discussion of Bordeaux and the Bordeaux grapes, I did want to mention just a little bit about um, my time in Bordeaux studying for the Certified International Bordeaux Wine Educator Certificate. I know that sounds like, wow, that grandiose, but it wasn't easy. I was in Bordeaux for nine days. Um, just, we were learning from everyone and uh, we were taking classes with the people that were actually teaching the wineries, sometimes classified growth Bordeaux, how to make their wine. And uh, what to do in the vineyards and, and things that they can do in the winery. Um, the thing that was kind of nerve wracking, and I knew this from the beginning. So let me tell you, I studied every night, never went out in the town even once. We had a three hour written exam that we had to pass, along with a one hour blind tasting where we tasted through a dozen different wines, had to fill out 15 different fields concerning grape varieties, how they were treated in the vineyards and all that. But the thing that made it so nerve wracking for me was three days before the exam, I started to come down with a cold. You cannot blind taste with a cold. Talk about luck. Uh, a coworker, Kenny Oaks, gave me some airborne. He knew I was going on this trip and he knew how difficult the course was supposed to be and all that. And it had just come onto the market. Nobody even really knew if it worked. But if it weren't for Kenny, <laughs> I would not have passed that test because I would have had a full-blown cold. I took the, uh, the airborne and it, it nipped the cold in the uh, bud there, so to speak. But a couple of the things that they taught us about was in the vineyards, how they were doing things to make the wine better. 
And one of the problems they had with Sauvignon Blanc vines, especially if there's a little bit of a drought, not, not what I'm talking about in 2003, but just not quite enough water, it develops these um, herbal flavors to the point where they're very sharp and very peppery. They call them pyrazines that are developed there. They weren't allowed at that time to irrigate at all, even a little bit, to alleviate that. So they were working with some ideas about pulling leaves over the fruit uh, to make the fruit riper to lessen that quality, which at the time was a, a, a kind of a new and very innovative thing. But one of the other things that got my attention was something they referred to as flash detente. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. It has to do with a minor heating of fully ripe, destemmed grapes in a vacuum. But it kind of bursts the cells and it does everything to make the wine better. Uh, it extracts more color. It extracts more polyphenols, which are the flavoring elements of the wine. It sets the color, makes the wine more stable because it kills the bad bacteria. Um, the wines ultimately are rounder, kind of fatter and showing beautifully sweet fruit with fantastic aromatics. But no one would use the technique because the only downside was the wines shut down during the first year. Now, they came back in the second year, but that is when all the wine writers from the United States went over to Bordeaux to taste the wines and to score them. And that's, um, that's how they made their money, because it was an open market thing. And if, if you got a 95-point score, you got more money from, for the wine than if you got a 92-point score. So no, no one would even play around with any of that. But, okay, back to, uh, back to Bordeaux here uh, in terms of picking up where we left off. Actually, Len, if I could interrupt you for a quick second, we actually have Larry Justice himself on the phone for you. Larry, how are you? Never better. How you doing, Len? Same. I'm doing fantastically well. Great. I uh, have a wine question for you. Great. All right. We're, uh, as you know, Uncle Tony is in Florida playing baseball, and uh -huh. uh, we're, we're having him over tomorrow night. Uh, we're going to have what I call an Italian luau, and uh, <laughs> uh, antipasto, uh, having pasta, we're having uh, red sauce and all kinds of good stuff and, uh, you know, uh, garlic bread. And I'm just wondering what kind of uh, wine should we uh, be serving tomorrow night? What a great question. Now, when you have all of those different things, it's hard to get something that's going to nail every one of them. But... One of my favorite kind of all-purpose wines for an Italian meal like that would be the Allegrini Valpolicella, the Palazzo della Torre. Um, it, it's their special bottling. It's a, above the Normale. It's not terribly expensive. It's around $23, $24 a bottle. But wow, does that over-deliver. It has that great acidity that's going to play well off the red sauces and everything else, but it's a little softer and a little bit richer. So it goes with a wider variety of foods too. So when you're doing the antipasti and all that kind of stuff, that would be where I would be heading in that situation for that. 
Um, when you have that kind of a situation for a white wine, what I'm looking for is a white wine with a lot of flavor to kind of stand up to all of those things, but without any oak at all. Because oak doesn't play well in those situations with the uh, the red sauce in particular is, is what I've found. Sometimes a little bit of it on a Barbera. But there I'm looking at the wines from Campania that would be um, the Fiano de Avellino, um, Greco de Tufo. Those, those are wines that have a lot of richness and depth to them. The other way to go that I just have a ton of fun with is Suave. Um, there's a Piera Pan Suave that is absolutely fantastic. It always gets 90 plus points in the wine spectator. And uh, it's just a little bit lighter, not quite as rich, but a ton of fun to drink. And especially if it's warmer out, you can really chill it down well, and it shows well colder. So uh, as for a red and a white, I do that. And, you know, I always include a sparkling, like the Prosecco or something like that. There's an Adami, a Gabriel, that's perfect. It's It just has this little kiss of fruitiness to it, and it works with pretty much everything. All right. Well, we've got about seven people coming over. So uh, we're really looking forward to it and having a really good time. Now, I'm a pretty simple guy, and I wasn't able to uh, write down anything that you said. So I'm going to send you my email. And would you mind sending me your choice of, uh, of a nice Italian wine to go with the antipasto and the, uh, and the pasta? I'm, I'm with you, Larry. Not only could I not say those words, there's no hope of me spelling any of that. So, well, Am I glad you said that, Larry? Because one of the things, seriously, one of the things that I always do is if someone emails me a question, I email them back for that very reason. I feel compelled. Right. You know, man, I got to do the pronunciation correctly. Hey, you know. I'm glad but, you can do it. Yes. Well, you know, but on uh, the other hand, had, sometimes uh, it's a little hard to understand. So I'd be more than happy to do that. And not only that, I would do that for any of our listeners and have done I that. I know. I know you have. In fact, we've had uh, emails that uh, have said, hey, uh, we sent uh, Lynn an uh, email and he responded right away. And uh, that's great. I really appreciate that, man. Yeah, I usually get back to people within 24 hours. Seconds. Oh, well, I'm going to need more. Not more seconds than that. always, but I, I, I usually get back to them in a couple of hours, but I don't want to raise expectations. Right. See? <laughs> well, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shop in the morning, so I'm going to need your info. I'll get it to you later tonight, so you'll, you'll have That's it in perfect. hand and be able to go out there. Yeah. Now, should I uh, send the email to Lynn? at WMEX.com. I already got you guys connected, my friend. No worries at all. Yeah, but just to oh. clarify that, it is Len W-M-E-X. So it's L-E-N-W-M-E-X at yeah. gmail.com. Yeah, well, we love your show and uh, learn something. We listen every week and we learn something new every week. And it's uh, pretty exciting. And uh, we're, we're kind of... Uh, 
Tony and I were talking, we're kind of getting away from beer, and we're going more into wine. A wise well, choice. I'll tell you, if, if you haven't listened to the podcast on wine and health, if you need a push, that'll give it to you. My God, it's such a healthy beverage. Now we're talking here, you know, moderate drinking, a glass or two with your right. meal. But it helps yeah. regulate the release of insulin into the bloodstream. Um, so it helps prevent type 2 diabetes. The heart health is off the charts. Yeah. There are just so and many. By the things. way, I have type 2 diabetes. Oh, you do? Okay. Well, yeah. one of the things I always say is check with your doctor to make sure. But I, from what I understand, there are, if, if it's certain wines, like a red wine, you may be able to do that. But please check with your doctor before, uh, before starting okay. any wine drinking regime there. Lynn, we appreciate you. We love your show. We listen to it uh, every Friday religiously. And I really thank you for your help. Thank you, my friend. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that, Larry. My God, I feel so humble here. God, well, that's that's great. Thank you. you. I really appreciate that. Well, we rely on you. You, the accredited uh, wine educator. I've been doing it for a long time and have encountered just a, I won't say every situation you could imagine, but just about. So. Well, thank you, my friend. And I look forward to getting that uh, information. Absolutely. Right after the show, Larry. Thank you. Thank you. Have a wonderful weekend. You too. All right. See ya. Okay. Take care. Wow. What a what a pleasant surprise. That was something, huh? The Halls of Justice off hours. But don't forget, folks, you can always catch Larry Monday morning at 10 o'clock. But, Len, the clock on the wall says, unfortunately, it is that time what do you say to that well i just want to thank everyone from list for listening and want to remind them it's wine by design with len on 1510 and until next week all the best in wine and life